Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with all of you this morning. It's always a joy to be here. Uh, if I have been accused of loving this church, I, I, I stand guilty of that. I do love this church. I've loved it for years since we were able to be here. Uh, and I look forward to many years by the grace of God to continue to labor together. I do think of it as uh, folks in, in a battle together. You are in one trench and we're in another trench. And, and we're not close enough to just talk every day. Uh, but we're fighting the same fight under the same captain, fighting the same enemy. Uh, and it's a joy to do that with all of you. So, well, this morning, as you, uh, as you heard, we, we take as our text the second half of the 19th chapter of the book of John. Uh, this is the, the pinnacle chapter of the book. The, the entire book of John has been leading up to this narrative, the narrative of the death of Christ. Uh, few texts in Scripture hold the importance that this one holds. I think we would all agree all of scripture is important yet we could also say few texts in scripture hold the importance that this one holds this is a foundation passage it's a bedrock text for our faith so many things are built upon this passage i, I was i was reflecting this morning how much we sang about that is built upon this passage once your enemy now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. We are, we're coming back to this passage again and again and again. So many themes of Scripture come out of here. So many things, you think of it like, almost like a, a city. If theology were a city, all these different buildings and spires and towers and all of these things rising up, they all begin right here. They all rest on this foundation of the crucifixion of Christ. It's almost surprising the way that John actually walks us through the text, though, the way that he narrates what happened on that day. It's not overly theological. You know, maybe, you, maybe you'd expect him to, to talk about the, the substitutionary nature of the death of Christ. He doesn't talk a lot about theology. You might also expect that he would deliver this in a passionate way. There's nothing that's ever happened about which we should be more passionate than this. And yet it's almost like reading a newspaper article. Just relating the facts. So this morning the main idea before us is that the reality of the cross is the bedrock of faith. The reality of the cross is the bedrock of of faith. We're going to look at it with two main points uh, coming straight from the text. I'm going to be pointing back to the verses again and again and again, so keep your Bible open. Uh, the first point is the account of his death, verses, uh, say, 17 through 30, and then the account of his burial from 31 on through the rest of the chapter. So the account of his death. First of all, we, we jumped into the passage this morning, and I, I know you, you probably didn't read the first half of the book, the, the book of John and chapter 19 before you came. So just to, to fill you in, we're, we're at the point in, in the book where Jesus' life and ministry has all happened. All the signs, all the miracles are behind us. He has, uh, he's had the Last Supper with his disciples. He's been betrayed by Judas. He's been through the trial and he was just pronounced guilty. Previous verse, he was just pronounced guilty by Pilate. And we pick up right here as they 
take him away. And that's why it begins verse 19. Actually, it's the end of verse 16 if we're, we're looking at it. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. They took Jesus bearing his own cross. John points out that Jesus carried the the instrument of his death. It's unclear from what John says if if Jesus carried uh, the entire cross as we would would think of it, the entire cross, or just the, the horizontal piece of the cross. It was common back in the day for the Romans to actually stand up the vertical piece in advance, get that secure on the ground, and then lift up the, the horizontal piece later with the person on it. So it's not, we're not clear exactly how much of this Jesus was carrying, but we are clear he was made to carry the cross. And John points out to us in this picture the aloneness of Christ. That he carried this alone. At this point, everybody else has moved away, and Jesus is walking towards the place of the skull by himself. Verse 18 is to me one of the more surprising verses in Scripture. Simply says, there they crucified him. As we said, the cross is the central teaching in the Christian message. Even people who don't know about Christianity could tell you that, right? It It is the central It's the heartbeat of the Scripture. It's the central teaching of biblical doctrine. And yet, for all that it signifies, for all that it means, for all the truth that that gets hung upon this concept, John relates to us the crucifixion in one word. Crucify. He doesn't tell us how. He doesn't talk about the hammer and nails. He doesn't discuss the agony. He doesn't go into the suffering. He doesn't take us into the details of the torture. He simply, with one word, recounts crucified. We may expect differently. You may have even heard a sermon on the crucifixion which talks in great detail about the pain that crucifixion was. That would make sense to do. We're not as familiar with it as the original audience. And yet, John doesn't do that. In fact, Matthew doesn't do that. And Mark doesn't do that. And Luke doesn't do that. All of them simply recount the historic reality. Jesus was crucified. John seems to go to great lengths to not play on our emotions. Oh, how easy it would have been. This is, a, this is as emotional of a thing that can ever happen to a human. And, and John just straight to it. No emotion. I think we should mark that closely. John, as he relates this, we should learn from the way that he does. He does expect his writing to impact us. He wouldn't have written it otherwise. He expects that this is going to impact us. But he does not aim for our emotions. He aims for our minds. He goes straight for our minds to recount the facts of the gospel, the facts of who Christ is and what he went through. And then he expects that those facts are going to impact our hearts, that those facts are going to stir up our emotion. Biblical truth always aims at the mind. 
never first at the emotion. Never. Biblical truth aims at the mind. God does not sort of jump in and and get straight at our hearts in some mystical way. God conquers our hearts through the the vehicle of our minds as truth is is comprehended by the mind. Then the heart is, is transformed by that truth. And John is clearly going that direction in this text. Okay, next few verses. Uh, Verse 19 down through verse 22, if you're following along. This is the the inscription that's put above Jesus' head. They They put a placard up that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This was common practice in, in the day, they would, they would put up over top of the, the crucified person the, the charges against them. This way, as the crowds would gather, and the crowds would always gather, crucifixions happened near major roads so that everybody could see what was going on. These were not meant to be private events. They were public events. And the purpose of the placard was to warn everybody that came, this is what will happen to you if you do this, this is how we treat X here in the Roman Empire. So if you were thinking about it, take a look at this guy and think about it again. It is meant to be a warning. And so Pilate put those words up there as a warning against sedition, a warning against making yourself into a king. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. This is what we do with those guys who, who would say that they're a king instead of Caesar. Well, this, the way that he did it offended the Jewish leaders, didn't it? They, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. D- don't say that. That's not accurate. Don't, don't say that. Say, he said that he's the king of the Jews. Don't just say he's the king of the Jews. Pilate just simply responds, what I have written, I have written. All the way to the end. I mean, these, the Jewish leaders had been chasing Jesus all the way to the cross. It was their hatred, it was their animosity that that drove everything there. They have been opposing the kingship of Christ throughout these previous several chapters. And here, in the final moments, they're opposing his claim to royalty again. And in the final moment, they fail. Because he is the king of the Jews. And that sign declared it, and it would not be changed no matter how much they tried. It would proclaim the reality. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And no man could change it. We're told that it was written in four, uh, three different languages. Again, that was, that was written in that way so that people of, who would speak any of those languages could come and read it, right? So this was, this was a major metropolis outside of Jerusalem and, and folks coming by would in all likelihood, have spoken one of the three languages there. Yet John sees fit to record this detail so that we can see that even on the cross, yes, he was the king of the Jews, but also the king of every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And even hanging on the cross, that message of who he is begins to get out to the whole world, translated already. It's like the first Bible translation ever, right there on the cross, proclaiming the reality so everyone could read it. This is the king of the Jews. 
as we work our way down through. Next paragraph starts in verse 23. The soldiers play their game, their, their, their bartering game over the, the clothes of Christ. They're casting lots, they're rolling dice to get his clothing. And this is the first time, if we hadn't picked it up before, where we can begin to see sort of the eyewitness nature of this account that we're getting. That the, you, you can ask the question, how does the author know what was going on right there? Right there at the foot of the cross. How does he know that, there were, that they divided it in f- four different ways? There must have been four different soldiers, right? They divided his garment in four ways. But then one, one of the garments couldn't be divided, so they cast lots over that one to see who would get it. They, there's even a quote. Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. We begin to wonder if the author of the book of John had overheard these comments. Well, we get more in the following few verses down in verse 25 through 27. This is probably the most intimate portrait that John gives us of Christ on the cross. He lists four different ladies that are there, four ladies around the foot of the cross. One of them is Mary, Jesus' mother. And with them stands a disciple, one who is identified as, verse 26, the disciple whom he loved. The disciple whom he loved. I, I, I love this, this reference. Now, throughout the book of John, John, the author, has never called himself by name. He's one of the disciples. He was there throughout. He did things. He never calls himself out by name. If ever he references himself, he does it this way. The disciple whom Jesus loved was there. Isn't that just precious? Can you imagine being able to to call you? Here's one thing I know. I know that he loved me. That's how John thinks about himself. That is, that is amazing. And he stands at the foot of the cross next to the mother of our Lord, Mary. And Jesus, the oldest son, right, looks down and sees his mother there. At this point, his mother is in all likelihood a widow. Jesus' words certainly indicate that. Jesus was carrying the responsibility of a firstborn son for his mom to provide for her and to care for her and to make sure that she was okay. And he knows he won't be able to do that anymore. And so he looks down at the disciple whom he loves, John, and says, Behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. John, take care of her for me. Would you do that? And John says, I've got it. I've got you. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And he would provide for Mary for the rest of her days. It's interesting because Jesus did have other half-brothers and sisters, right? But at this point, they were not following him. They didn't know him for who he was. They didn't love him. Eventually, some of them would. James would become a great leader in the church. But at this point, they weren't. And Jesus wanted this disciple to care for his mom. Well, verse 28 through 30 describes the end of this crucifixion narrative. Jesus reveals that he's thirsty, and it's very clear in the text. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, 
I thirst. Throughout this passage, there there are three different times where John is careful to point out this happened in accordance with the Scripture. This casting lots thing, yeah, that was accordance with the Scripture. Being thirsty, that was in accordance with the Scripture. And we'll see the next one in the next section. All of these happening according to to God's Word. And then Jesus declares, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And I don't know about you, that's an unusual way, I think, to talk about death. To give up your spirit. I don't think it's too much to, to see in this sort of the, the complete control of the Savior throughout this. Complete control. From the outside, it looks like completely out of control. And yet there was not one thing that happened to Jesus that he did not allow to happen. Not one thing was taken from him that he did not give. All the way to his spirit itself. It is finished. That ends the account of his death. We've said the reality of the cross is the bedrock of faith. That's what we're looking at this morning. And we've made our way through the account of his death. And now we'll look at the account of his burial. I recognize this is a long passage. I I don't know how long of passages you normally uh, have preached here. Every time I'm here, I'm preaching, so I don't really know. (laughs) What do you normally do? For our church, this is a longer passage uh, to to go through all at once. But, But I was thinking about it this morning, and John packs a lot in here. And there's a weightiness to this, a a cumulative effect of all of these details that that we're going through and we're going to continue to go through. And I I think of it like like an axe. Have you you ever split wood? You You need an axe with some gravity to it, a little mass on the end there. So when you bring it down, it, it does the work that you're wanting it to do. John has work he wants to get done through this passage. So hang with me as we continue to, to get the weight of this passage with, with each other. So verse 31, the account of his burial. The 31 through 34 talks about this desire that the Jewish leaders have to get the bodies down from the crosses. They want to get the bodies down from the cross because tomorrow is the Passover. And bodies on crosses defile the land on the Passover. And this Passover, sorry, tomorrow is the Sabbath. <laughs> and, and the bodies on the crosses will defile the land on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is, is a particularly special one because it's on the Passover weekend. So this is, this is a big deal. And, and they, they don't want the land defiled, which is really ironic since they were the ones who just did the crime, killing Jesus. They have no concern about that. But let's make sure we dot all the I's and cross all the T's here. So they want to get the, the bodies down, but they've got a couple problems with this. First problem is uh, crucifixions were a Roman punishment, not a Jewish punishment. So the Jewish authorities had no right to go and change what was happening. They couldn't do it to start with. Secondly, however, the Romans were pretty particular about crucifixions that had to do with sedition. If you had done some sort of an uprising against Caesar, um, your punishment in all likelihood would be crucifixion, and they were going to do all they could to make it last as long as they could, hour after hour, and sometimes day after day, hanging there, slowly dying. They'll give you a little more to drink to keep you going. 
so you can suffer longer. And once you're gone, they're going to keep you up there for a month or two so that everybody can see that's what happens when you stand against Rome. And of course, above Jesus' head was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So there was concern that they wouldn't even be allowed to take Jesus' body down. But of all the things stopping them from taking the bodies down, probably the biggest one was this. They weren't dead yet. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what the leaders thought anyway. Okay, we've we got to get the bodies down off the crosses, but the guys are still alive. And so they, they did what was common at the time to speed along the crucifixion. They, they got permission, and the soldiers went, and they broke the legs of those who were still living. And they were surprised to see Jesus had already died. They would break the legs of the victims because as they would be stretched on that cross, it was hard to breathe. You'd be kind of hanging there. You'd stand up, you take a breath, and then you'd fall back down and stand up and take a breath. But once, once these leg bones were broken, you could no longer do that. And the only way to breathe was to pull up and the body would quickly tire and the person would asphyxiate, die of lack of oxygen. So they knew that. It's a gruesome practice. But in light of what they were going through, it's almost a merciful thing to happen. They went to do this to, to the three men. It's very clear. They did it to the one and then to the other, but not to Jesus. They were surprised he was dead. They verified that he was dead by taking the spear, jabbing it in his side, and out comes, as it says, blood and water. And then finally, verses 38 through the end of the passage, having verified that Jesus was dead, they, they ordered quickly that he be taken down from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were two secret disciples of Jesus. They both followed him, but secretly because they were afraid of the Jews. And they get together to take care of Jesus' body. Joseph handles the legal aspects of getting permission, which is remarkably granted so that Jesus could be buried. Nicodemus springs for the, the spices and the burial cloths to wrap Christ. It was typical to, this was, it even says in the passage, this was how the Jews did it. They would wrap the bodies in pieces of cloth and, and put the burial spices in there. What was not typical is to use 75 pounds of burial spices. I, I think I could probably say no person convicted of sedition in the history of the Roman Empire got treated like this. This, all of a sudden, from the, from the horror of a crucifixion, all of a sudden it was burial for a king. It was burial for a king. John wants us to see that. The honor that was given to Christ as he was taken to a brand new tomb well cared for in his death. And with the sun setting, right, it's been all day, the crucifixion happened, the sun is heading down the, the way the Jews marked the, the transition of days. The Sabbath begins when the sun sets, not the next morning like we would think or at midnight. The, the next day begins when the sun goes down. So they're in a hurry. They can't do this stuff on the Sabbath. They've got to get, they've got to get this done. And so they, they're able to find a tomb close by. They put Jesus' body in the tomb. And they finished the work they had done, even as Jesus had finished his work. 
So, there's the the acts that John has been making for us. The, The weight of all of these details of this passage about the crucifixion of Christ. And if one thing is clear from the narrative, one thing as we can look back, it is this. We are to know that Jesus died. That's, where it's, that's what we're to know. Sometimes, do you ever do this? You, you, you read your Bible and it's like, uh, scratch your, what is this about? What, what's under this? What's around this? And sometimes we can almost make it too complicated. Here's what the text is about. Jesus actually died. He well and truly died. He died among the wicked with a man on either side, with soldiers bartering at his feet. He took care of his mother with some of his last words. He thirsted and got a drink. He declared that his work was finished and he gave up his spirit. He was buried by rich and powerful yet timid disciples. The Holy Spirit, through his servant John, wants us to know these facts, to have them set clearly before us. And they are set as clearly here as any newspaper article talking about a current event could, could lay them out. This is what happened. Yet, John has more and the Holy Spirit has more for us than simply what happened. We need to know what happened. But there's, there's more to it. And verse 35 tells us John's purpose statement for this passage. Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. He who saw it has borne witness. All right, let's, let's think about this. Here's John again. Remember, he doesn't talk about himself in the first person. Sort of humbly, normally keeps himself in the background. Who, who is this? He who saw it. John is the one who saw it. John was the disciple standing at the foot of the cross who was taking care of Mary, right? Who overheard the, the conversation of the soldiers. And, and this one, John, he is the one who saw it. He says, I've seen it and I've borne witness and my testimony is true. John's saying this, look me in the eyes. I saw him die. I saw it happen. Detail after detail. I was there. He said, it is finished. And it was. And the soldiers made sure of it with that spear in his side. He who saw it has borne witness, he says, that you may believe. Now, who's you all of a sudden in this Our eyewitness all of a sudden says, you. See, our eyewitness is also the author. And he knows he's writing to his readers. As we read this, John is talking to us. I wrote this so that you, dear reader, could learn and believe. And he's writing clearly for the purpose of stirring our faith. I have written so that you may believe. The facts are given for the sake of faith. That goes back to our main idea. The reality of the cross is the bedrock of faith. It is the bedrock of faith. John expects faith. 
to arise in the hearts of at least some of his readers as a result of what he has recorded for them. How does God do that? How does God produce faith through simple words like this? Through our newspaper-like accounting of the crucifixion of Christ, John expects life-transforming faith to happen in the hearts of his readers. How does God do that? Well, I'll tell you what. It's not through emotional appeal. Unlike what the world would have to say, our world would, would if they, if they want to change your mind, they'll, they'll give you a, a touching story, a moving movie with some good thematic music and soundtracks. The church has adopted a lot of this in many churches where it's all about the experience and the smoke machines and the feelings and it's very light on the truth. And yet when our God desires to produce faith in the hearts of His people. He doesn't short-circuit our minds to get to our hearts. He goes through our minds and therefore transforms our hearts through the news of reality, the news of reality, the historic reality of the death of Christ. So how does God bring faith in response to these things? John does not tell us. He just expects that that's what God does so we should expect it too. We should expect that God uses these means of talking about the reality of the death of Christ. God will use that to birth faith in people's hearts. That's an amazing idea. I think of it, I think of it like this. I, we're probably an unusual family. We, we heat our home for the most part in the winter. We heat our home with uh, our fireplace. So I am constantly tending a fire throughout the winter from October through April. What's Ken doing? He's working on the fire, right? Yeah. So, so if, if I didn't do a good job at night and keep the fire going, in the morning I've got to get the fire started. So, so what do you do? You, you stack up little pieces of kindling, yeah? Tiny pieces at first and then bigger and then bigger. Maybe like a pyramid or however you make it, right? bigger and bigger and get all the wood set and then you set the, the flame to it and there it goes. Yeah? The words of the gospel are like the kindling. Our job as we declare Christ to others around us is to set those pieces in place in their hearts. Set them there. That's what John is doing for us. He's getting ready to build the fire. He's setting well, this is what happened to Christ, and this is what happened to Christ, and this is what happened, and I was there, and I saw it, and you can know that it's true. And he sets all these things in place, and then, and then you stand back, and you wait for the Holy Spirit to light the thing on fire. This is how God works. He lights the words, the gospel on fire in people's hearts. There's nobody in history that has been saved since the death of Christ apart from hearing these Words. These words are the message of life. And yet many have heard these words and not been saved. You've got to have the, the wood in place and the fire of the Spirit that comes. So let us be faithful, brothers and sisters, declaring these words to those around us and praying for Holy Spirit fire to ignite in the hearts of those around us. So the news of his death is sort of the, the fuel ignited by the Holy Spirit producing faith. If that's true, and it is, 
That's how people are saved. It's no wonder then that the crucifixion of Christ has been so attacked and assaulted over the past 2,000 years. People have been trying to bury the crucifixion ever since it happened. Lies have come up again and again from skeptics and false teachers and doubt sowers. A long line of folks who have strained credibility with their creativity to come up with something they could say that would dissuade us from believing this passage. Here's, here's the top three that I'm aware of. The first, that Jesus did not have a human body, just looked like it. He was spirit, and only spirit, and so therefore he couldn't have actually died. The second was, oh no, no, he had a human body. He just didn't actually die. He passed out. It's called the swoon theory. He swooned. And then we got in the nice, cool, air-conditioned tomb. He came back around. And the third, believed by about one-third of people on the planet, because it is taught in the Quran, believes that the wrong man was hung on the cross and that the true Jesus made his escape elsewhere. God protected his prophet. Somebody else was crucified. Let me say this. For 2,000 years, people who were not there have had a lot to say about what happened that day. And we have before us the word and uh, the word that is left for us of the man who was there that day. The eyewitness account of John himself. We hold eyewitness news in our laps this morning. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. John heard the hammer hit the nails. John smelled the sour wine was given to Christ. He listened to the conversation between the soldiers at the foot of the cross. He probably lent his strength to Mary as she watched her son so brutally treated. He saw the blood and water flow. Let us give ear to one who was there. Let us give attention to him and lay aside the fable spinners, the conjecturers, and instead give heed to the one who bore witness. The cross of Christ is a matter of history. It is a matter of history. Before it's a matter of theology, it's a matter of history. Beneath the cross of theology, undergirding it and supporting it, stands the cross of human history. Christianity hinges on this truth. It hinges on the actual historic death of Christ. Upon this foundation, everything else we hold dear is built. Everything else we hold dear is built on this 10 square feet of earth on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Without his death, if he didn't die, he didn't rise. There's no resurrection. Without his death, there's an enemy who has not been defeated. Without his death, there is a debt unpaid. Without his death, there is an offense against a holy God unatoned for. Without his death, there's no redemption. There's no adoption. There's no reconciliation. 
without his death, we have no comfort for our past. We have no purpose for our present. We have no hope for our future. Without his death, Christianity crumbles. Mankind is severed from its creator. And all hope fails. Without his death. But praise be to God. We hold in our hands the eyewitness account of the actual death of the Son of God. John was there. And he knows, not just from here, but through three years of being with Jesus, uh, that he was a human. John was the one who leaned back upon Christ during the Last Supper, spoke with him, shared the bread with him. When Jesus talked about uh, someone's going to betray me, he, he just leaned up, Lord, who? Is it me? Who is it? He knows of the physical, bodily Jesus Christ. Christ was not a spirit upon the cross. John can make clear to us that Jesus was not misidentified. The disciple whom he loved stood at his feet, and he knew his Lord. And you can be sure that Mary knew her son, and that it was, in fact, the Lord himself who was upon that cross. And Jesus didn't swoon on the cross as though the vicious soldiers had somehow forgotten their craft. They were professional killers, and they didn't mess it up. And John is very precise, almost gruesomely precise, about how they made sure that all three were dead. He would have us know that Christ did, in fact, die. The Son of God did hang upon that cross. The Savior of the world actually did finish the task. He said, it is finished, and it is finished. The Lamb of God was slain. And because of this, we have an enemy, but he's been defeated. Because of this, we have a debt, but it's been paid for. Because of this, we have an offense against a holy God, but it has been atoned for entirely. We have forgiveness. We have reconciliation. We have justification and sanctification, and we will know glorification. We have adoption. We have a past under the good providence of God, a present under the good purposes of God, a future under the good grace of God. We have eternal life. We have unending hope. We have all of this because He died. All of it is ours because of the death of Christ. Ours is a faith that reaches to the clouds, but it's not founded there. It's founded in historic reality. Those 10 square feet on that little hill outside Jerusalem, that blood-soaked ground, all of our lives rest upon that precious ground where the blood of our Lord was shed for our salvation, for the salvation of every saint that you know, for the salvation of everyone that you pray will one day be saved. All of our hope rests right 
there. The reality of the cross is the bedrock of faith. It's the bedrock of our faith. Every person in the room who knows the Lord, who's in right relationship with God, is in right relationship with God because of this, what John shared. It was the bedrock of faith for every saint that's gone before. We're in a long line, believers, generation after generation, middle ages, dark ages, century after century have looked here for their foundation faith. And friends, every person that comes after us that will ever come to faith in our Lord Jesus will come to faith right here with these words. Take the kindling out of the box and set up the fire. Share these words with others. Who knows but that God will use these words to cultivate new faith in the next generation of those that will believe. He will do it. May He use us to do it. His church will not falter. He will will keep this moving. May He use us to do it. That a new generation may rise up and cling to this old rugged cross and may we cling to it. May we cling to the old rugged, the ancient, the historic cross of Christ where our Savior died where our faith is founded. We're going to take communion now. I was surprised pleasantly to find out that's what we get to do after this message this morning. Let us remember his death until he comes together.